Drink up me hearties, yo-ho, 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 a new episode of Doing Disney for Me. <laughs> Theme song guy. On this podcast, we let it go, because Hakuna Matata and the bare necessities will always be our guide to infinity and beyond. All it takes is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. We know that life is better under the sea, because on this podcast, we do Disney. Hi there, I'm your hostess for the mostest, Kelly Meehan, and welcome to Doing Disney. Today, I've sailed the seven seas to bring to you the one, the only, Mr. Caleb Coho. Caleb, thank you for joining me today. I am so excited to be here. You were like, oh, we're going to talk Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm like, there's no other place I'd rather be to talk Pirates of the Caribbean ever. So I'm just like, this is going to be great. Start at the beginning. Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, released in 2003, directed by Gore Verbinski. It stars Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow, Kira Knightley as Elizabeth Swan, Orlando Bloom as Will Turner, and Jeffrey Rush as Captain Barbosa. We are introduced to the setting of Port Royal, where Governor's daughter Elizabeth awakens from a recollection of when she was a child and saved Will Turner, but not without first pocketing a pirate medallion found on his person. At the ceremony for the promotion of possible fiancé Commodore Norrington, she faints and falls into the sea where she is saved by recently arrived Captain Jack Sparrow. However, Jack is a pirate and attempts to escape the scene where he is eventually found and turned in by Will, who has a lifelong hatred of pirates. Afterwards, Barbosa, captain of the Black Pearl, and his crew of the undead attack the town searching for the cursed pirate medallion held by Elizabeth, who uses her knowledge of the pirate code to board the ship. She gives a false surname, Turner, and is abducted by the ghostly crew. This leaves Jack and Will to work together to get both Elizabeth back and for Jack to reclaim the ship he has been searching for. We see a climactic showdown at the Isla de Muerta, full of backstabbing and twists and turns, where eventually the curse of the Aztec gold is lifted, yet Jack is to be hanged for piracy. The film ends with Will and Elizabeth attempting to stage a rescue for Jack, Elizabeth and Will declaring their love for each other, Will is pardoned, Jack escapes, and sets sail for new adventures. Tale as old as time. Well, today we're actually celebrating the 20th anniversary. When I saw that milestone this week, I was like, no way, it has not been 20 years. But 20th anniversary of Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. I could think of no better guest. Caleb, tell me, how did you come to the first Pirates movie? So I, I was actually just talking about this with my mom, like, today. Because I told her I was doing the show. And I was like, so do you remember, like, when you showed me the movie? Because I remember when, I, like, my first memory of seeing the movie is not in theaters. It's actually the only one that I don't think I ever got to see in a theater because I was so young. Um, like I have vivid memories of seeing the other four opening night uh, at the theater that actually I worked at and now just closed two weeks ago. Uh, so it's uh, Pirates has always been special for me. Uh, I will never forget the first time I watched it in my parents' room with them. They used to have a TV, like a little box TV that was like in a cabinet. Um, and so I remember, I remember sitting there and watching this movie with all these pirates doing all these cool things. And then all of a sudden the skeletons and like the curse. And so I just vividly remember pirates walking underwater as skull and bones. And that was like the moment for me where I was like, this is, this is the greatest thing I'll ever see in my life. And like, as I grew up, I, you always have those movies where you're like, Oh man, that just hit as a kid. And it never is going to live up to that as an adult. It's one of the only ones ever that I come back to. And I love it more as an adult than I did as a kid. Uh, so I just, I love these movies, especially the first one. That's so. This is like your Princess Bride. Like this is you, like hearing the story of the Princess Bride from the grandfather, like watching the movie on TV. How old do you reckon you would have been when you watched it? Like, was it too um, scary? 
my this is the other thing we were trying to figure out because I know I was six when I saw Dead Man's Chest in theaters for the first time. So I had to have been somewhere between like four and five, probably when I watched Curse of the Black Pearl. My guess is they showed it to me because the second one was coming out. Um, ah. So like they, there's always the, um, uh, I wonder if you remember these, they used to have these little uh, magazines, the Disney Adventures or something like that. Is what they oh, were called. yes. They, uh, I read every issue, every edition that had the Pirates of the Caribbean on it at all. I remember reading that they were naming the third one at World's End, and I was like, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. So, like, I, I think I was reading those when I was, like, five, and my mom was like, well, you should probably watch the movie that that person's from. I, I'm going to guess that's how we got to Pirates of the Caribbean. That's perfect. That was um, something I was really curious about. Like, how did you – because we know you in the community for your love of the movies. Um, and I was doing the math today, and, like, no, he would have been too young. Because then, when I was thinking how I came to it, I was um, I was twelve when it came out in two thousand and three. So definitely of the time of starting to get a bit of your own autonomy, starting to get a bit of your own pocket money, being able to actually find mm. the um, tickets and prices, and so going with friends and going without guardians and things like that. So this is definitely of that time, and I just remember so vividly how tied up this was with the competition with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Like it was a real thing. It was a real beef. You picked one the other and you're either on the winning or losing side and I think yeah. I was yeah I know I think I was on the losing side to start I think I loved leave extraordinary gentlemen more as a child because um and so when I picked first oh please laugh but it had not to sound pretentious but it had the literary references so I loved sure. like the um Dorian Gray stuff and the Jekyll and Hyde stuff and the Dracula stuff and it had Shane West and I loved Get Over It and A Walk to Remember and all that so it was the winner but my friend group was definitely obsessed with uh Pirates of the Caribbean and specifically Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow right. like friends had posters in that wall the movie poster like the the marketing for this was so good. Like, that poster is fire. I still love it. The colours, the saturation, their faces, the two guns, the treasure. Like, I think that sold, really sold it. Because definitely even I remember at the time hearing, even maybe not being at 1200, being understand the rhetoric, but, like, what, a theme park ride? Because I do remember Country Bears not being a great movie. And I remember, like, The Haunted Mansion not being well-received. Because you hear these things, even though, like, I can't process as much as a kid. Because, like... Mm it's a Disney movie and it's Eddie Murphy or it's a Disney movie and it's Bears, like it's great. But that was definitely like the conversation what you would read in the magazines at the time was like, oh, this, what's going to happen? And just when it came out, just the mega success and surprise it was. And I think it was for a lot of the reasons of the things you touched on is that it's just a great action adventure, swashbuckling film. It's really funny that we're getting a new Indiana Jones this year because that's what this reminds me of. It was like, this feels like oh, yeah. our generation's Indiana Jones almost to an extent. Uh, definitely. And I, I, I know that like, that's something my dad and I've actually talked about is like for him growing, like for him, when he was my age, it was Indiana Jones. It was like Raiders Lost Ark, Last Crusade. Those were like, you saw those, you loved those. And that's the, and that's the most you got. And like right at the intersection of like when he was having me and like start, like turning like 38, there was like the mummies and the Pirates of the Caribbean that came out. And he, I remember him, my dad is a huge adventure movie fan. So he was, he's really the person I attribute to my love of movies in general, but also just my adventure movies. Cause that's, that's his whole thing is like, he loves treasure hunting and like, um, and globetrotting adventures. And so when those came out, he was like, this is something that I have to share with my kid. 
and I and I think he still is really happy that I love these movies the way I do, because uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about them all the time. And then every time there's a new one, you know, we have to go see it together. Like we just saw Indiana Jones together for uh, the opening day of the fifth one. Um, and we were talking about how like we don't get these very often. So when we get them, we make it a point to see them. Like even even if Jungle Cruise wasn't the greatest movie ever made, I went and saw that opening day because we don't get that anymore. So um, I, I love these or even like even like Lone Ranger which isn't like it's a Western adventure, but like it's the same team as Pirates and you feel like it's Pirates of the Caribbean with like a Western skin on. So like it has that yeah. adventure feel. It's stuff like that. The DNA like, of even it. If the, yeah, exactly. And like, even if they suck, it's like, I still want to see them. I want them to make more of these. So. <laughs> it is. It's definitely become a bit of a, um, a dying genre at the moment, which is so funny because um, it was, as I sort of said, considered a bit toxic for being a pirate film, which we know was notoriously box office poison a little bit of the time. So I think this definitely uh, revitalized a bit of that action adventure. It's my favorite part because you'll see. Let's get straight into it, though. What are some of your favorite scenes from the film? What would you hold up as like, this is the scene, this is the one? So I like went back and rewatched this movie again for the purposes of the podcast. Cause I was like, I need to go through and find my answers because otherwise I'd like would have 12,000 different things where I would like overlook little elements. And this last watch, like it's, everyone will point to, you know, you might, you must start believing ghost stories. You're in one, like that seems like incredible to me. Um, but the scene that will always uh, stand out to me is uh, when Jack Sparrow is escaping Norrent the first time. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, where it's just the the way they have him captured and they're just going, they basically just dress him down right there, where it's just a compass that doesn't point north, a gun with a single shot, they pull out the sword and they're like, I would have half expected it to be made of wood. Uh, is just like such a great way of being like, you have to be the worst pirate I've ever seen. And it's just that, but you have heard of me and the escape and then Will fighting him. Like that whole sequence to me is just that to me is such a character and franchise defining scene that is so important to the DNA of what makes these movies so good is, is that there's a character like Jack who is so like discounted because you look at him and it's like, there's no way like underestimated in every way, but for whatever reason you are rooting for the character, you like this character, you want to watch this character succeed and to see him succeed in the most unnatural of ways in a in a reality where, if we're being honest, Jack is is in real life the bad guy of these stories uh, for being a pirate, and Norrington should be the one you're rooting for. Normally, to see them sort of take that dynamic and flip it in a way where you're not outright being like Norrington's a villain, but being like Norrington's the antagonist chasing a character that you now really enjoy seeing. I I have this most shortlist as well. I've titled it "The Day You Almost Caught Captain Jack Sparrow" because that's going to come up again in quotes. I'm just going to say now because oh, it's yeah. probably like the most favorite quote from the whole series. But this it. first time that you see it, I completely agree, and it's been great because um we've seen different sides of the character already in a short period of time because we've seen him um like uh pay to get his way into. Uh, Port Royal, but then take the money from from the bench, and then we've seen him rescue Elizabeth, but then we see him then hold her hostage, which I find really interesting as well, because it's oh love, you saved my life, I've saved, I've saved your life, you saved mine now, and he pushes it just enough, which is really I think indicative of this first film. They push it 
just to the line where it's just not creepy. It's just like just a little bit seedy feeling where like he has her put he put it put his effects on him because obviously he's chained up. And then uh as as we sort of said, this is the day you almost caught Captain Jack Sparrow shoves her and big like I I love it all. I think it is as you sort of said, it's the way they are able to manipulate the scene where you are rooting for Jack even though he's not a great character but we always love like a cheeky and uh cheeky protagonist and an underdog sort of story those anti-hero stories everyone loves anyone with like a bit of a wit to them as well so I I, I love this scene the one I'm gonna go with a little bit before that and it's what you sort of said with setting the tone of the characters what sets the tone of the films in general to me and what I think makes them so successful is the scene I love that we don't open straight away on Jack Sparrow. I love that we do open on Will, Elizabeth, a bit of that. You don't get Jack Sparrow until 10 minutes into the film, but you get him striding along on the top of a masthead on a boat that you don't know at the time is sinking. And when he, it's this big, glorious shot that would be in any typical swashbuckling adventure, like, here you go, here's the pirate, here's the king. And just the fact that he jumps down into the water and it's sinking. It's the comedic timing of the films, Caleb, that is just the selling point to me. And this first one in particular, every single beat, they nail it. They, it is not overt. It is not like a hearty ha ha, look what's happening here. It's just letting the audience be smart enough to be duped by the situation or fall into the situation of what's happening. And then the fact that he just um, is on the top as it's coming into land and just steps off into the deck. You see that shot of him walking on. I think it's just great cinematic storytelling. What are your thoughts of this scene? What did you, do you remember seeing this for the first time? I think this is, uh, I've talked about this with other people who are like, I would say are way more cinematically intelligent people than I am, but they will at least grant me this, that I think this is maybe the greatest character introduction of all time, or at least in the discussion, where it's just, it tells you everything you need to know with a character who says one line of dialogue in the entire opening until he gets to land. And that's just him paying respects to some dead pirates. And it's it's incredible to just see this this guy that looks like he looks apart so well of a pirate and to just see him just barely making it into land from a dinghy. And I think it's so great to just sort of establish that this guy's not good at what he does um, at all, but he is lucky as all hell. Um, and I think that the scene, you're right, like these movies are, I wouldn't necessarily call them out-and-out -out comedies, but they're all very funny because in the DNA of it, the, I think the most important people to these movies uh, are Ted Elliott and Terry Rosio, who are the, the two guys who have written uh, four of the five uh, movies, we'll split up for the fifth one, but one of them worked on it. So they, they've written all of these, and they're very funny writers. Uh, they, they've done Treasure Planet, wrote to Eldorado, the first Shrek, like they are, they're some of my favorite writers of all time. And so what, but I think the first movie is probably the best thing they've ever written, um, on a page level, because I think what they are able to do is they are able, just like you said, to inject humor into a story that if they played this straight would be one of the most terrifying things you've ever yeah. seen. I think, I think it's a guaranteed flop if you don't have that humor in it. Like it doesn't matter if if you have Johnny Depp because he's not going to play that straight. He wouldn't be able to play that straight performance. Then, like you wouldn't be getting the character Jack Sparrow if you don't have that humor in there. It's a completely different film, and I think it is one of those standard summer blockbusters. It would become a stock standard generic one. So I think it's the humor and the tone really does make it. Uh, are there any other scenes that stand out to you? It's it's probably the ultimate 
scary scene of the movie that I think also just totally feeds into the element of what I love about the Pirates movies is that at the end of the day, while we think of them for the epic action set pieces or the comedy or how weird Jack is, I think every single movie keeps this supernatural horror element in all five movies of something that is, that is a ghost story. And I think all of them in some way, shape or form, keep the ghost story element going. This is, I think, the best one that, of keeping a like ethereal presence to it. And I think the best way of doing that is by having Barbosa, which I love the drama of of a former first mate, mutinied, you took your crew, took your gold, and now they're all cursed. And now you are at their mercy because they need not even they don't even care about you. They care about the person that you save that you save that you're also needing. And I love the way Barbosa monologues the entire story of this in this very like like campfire story way where it's just this very creepy menacing monologue of just like so long have we eaten and thirsted and never died and just this very pirate speak way until finally she runs out and sees all the skeleton pirates and just coming out after her and just the the moment that was burned in my brain is the first thing I've ever remember I could ever remember about these movies is the image of Barbosa turning into a skeleton, stepping out and saying, "You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one." Uh, I think it is that is, and I'll I'll spoil it. That's my pick for the best line in the movie. I, the I think that is that is the court. <laughs> we'll come that, back that to is that the as quote. Well. Well, well, but I I love <laughs> I love what this scene does because it it establishes to me at least how terrifying Barbosa can be. And especially in this movie is uh, as an antagonist, where if you cross him, it's terrifying to be on the opposite end of it. And also really establishes the stakes of the movie for everyone. I think that's the one piece of the puzzle that you don't have yet is, is you know they're cursed because you see them earlier in the movie be skeletons, but like in little glimpses. But I think like what that moment really keys in on is we know what Will wants and we know what Elizabeth wants. We know what Jack wants, but we don't know what the bad guys want. And when you finally put that final piece of the puzzle together, where it's like, they need her, but not her, to fix this. <laughs> and you see how scary this is and how cool the action can be with that element in it. I, I love that scene. That is a fantastic point about showing the bad guy's perspective of that. I love that. Um, when I was watching it this time, this scene especially felt like an homage to theme park rides and maybe not specifically the pirates one but it gives haunted house it gives those um jump scares and things like that because you have her going through like bumping into all the different pirates and them just like going going about their pirate duties like scrubbing the deck as skeletons for some reason i just love that they're just all in sync as skeletons just even in the afterlife you get no rest right and and I do like that, like like you said, this is probably the closest we get to the theme park ride homages in this because they made it like it was like a purposeful mandate that you needed to remove as many theme park elements as you can for the movie, otherwise it won't sell. And I think it's so weird that they didn't they they were the opposite of that with the haunted mansion because they thought the haunted mansion in the same year was going to be the hit and this was going to be the flop. And that movie literally starts with the narrator saying, "Welcome, foolish mortals." Uh, and I, so I love the juxtaposition of those two. But I, I love, I love the two, three really major homages to the ride are Tortuga. They have some visual elements. The skeleton pirates and then the dog is like all we really get. Though they were supposed to have the waterfall, 
uh, to get into the cave, and they cut it because they felt it would be too much, and then they brought it back and saved it for At World's End, and I think it's way cooler at At World's End. Uh, but yeah, I, I love the way the ride ties into this movie. One more scene I wouldn't mind jumping on is uh, one I definitely remember as a kid because coming off loving Lord of the Rings, so of course I've also got posters of Legolas in my wall. So then when we're introduced to Will Turner, Orlando Bloom, definitely like the best thing we've seen him apart from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I love the sword fight scene. When he walks back into the, the blacksmith, it's like right where I left you, not where I left you. I love that little delivery. And then we get... Um, I brought it up earlier, but a definitely an homage to the Princess Bride with um, Inigo Montoya and, and Wesley. But this sword fight, lighthearted in tone, but when I was watching it this time, I'm like, oh, no, it's actually saying a lot more. It's giving you character description in the way they fight and in the way they present themselves because obviously Will, very upstanding, very morals, uh, denies anything evil to be and thinks, thinks himself the hero, practices every day so that when he finds a pirate, he can kill it. Um, and fights with integrity, whereas we get everything we see with Jack where he does not fight with integrity because he's a pirate. So I like that. And then the set pieces, I think, are so great and obviously so successful because we see these stunts almost mirrored in every film following, but bigger and better. But just them, like, fighting on the seesaw sort of thing. I, I love the, the interactivity of the set piece. What are your thoughts on this scene? Um, so I, I do think this is the best action piece in the movie, which is crazy because there's so many great ones. Um, and I love Gore Verbinski's direction of all three of the originals. Um, I, I love the way he makes the set pieces feel like alive and like visually so interesting to watch. And they're in one room and all there really is is just a seesaw and a turntable with swords. And that's all you really have to interact with. Um, but I, I love their banter back and forth throughout this whole thing, because that also like shows so much where it's just like, Jack has no intention of killing this guy. He will, if he has to, but he's just trying to get out. And Will's like, I'm going to kill you because you said, like you said, he thinks this is his responsibility as a hero, um, without, which makes that scene every time I watch it so much sweeter, knowing where we go and what his history is and his, and his fate. And just seeing the development of when I see a pirate, I could kill it to ending as essentially the new Davy Jones. I think it's just incredible character development. But I I think my favorite part of that entirely is the button on it, where he turns around to swing and Jack's got the gun pointed at him. He's like, you cheated, pirate, uh, is like just a great button. But I also love the extra couple seconds past that too, before they catch him. Just the, there's, it, it doesn't necessarily pertain to the scene, but it pertains to Barbosa and the ending and everything we go through. Just with him pointing the gun, he's like, move. He's like, no, he's like, please move and he's just like <laughs> and just his desperation where he's like this shot was not meant for you is just like such mm -hmm. a great i love that final piece to that too it's just that you're right this whole set piece is just magnificent in setting up who both these men are and also does so much with the writers retroactively have to make this part one of a three-parter and they step up and hit a home run by taking the things from this scene and tying it all in the sequels and giving them a place to end that is like so so dialed in especially to this exact scene as you sort of said like the way they are able to thread things in throughout the film like you don't get it on that first watch absolutely you need to have multiple watches and like even now i'm like oh that links into that which was like oh they knew that but she he didn't know that and just even like as a kid um when like will knocks jack out and who's betraying who like i'm not going to be your leverage like i've just the script is just 
is so well done. Really like um, take my hat off to the breadcrumbs they were able to lay through where they're obvious in hindsight, but not spring fed to you. And I think that's a hard tight rope to walk. Definitely. And and that just, yeah, I, I can't, I, 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 I will say it right now. Boat and I are going to be doing these writers on our filmography podcast because it's like, I, I love them so much in their work. Um, and especially, I just wanted to like guilt boat into covering all five parts of the Caribbean movies on the show um, <laughs> and find a way to do it. Uh, but I, I love exactly how, you said, how they're able to lead you on such a great journey without being like hey look at this it's very much a like they and every sequel they do this too even more elaborately because I, I i know people's complaints with them is just there's so much um but when you really look at it the balancing act that they're able to pull off across all three and even in this one just to to give you little bits and pieces of these characters and their histories and this like i i adore like even just back on the boat when he like before Elizabeth falls to the water, it's like, and then they made me their chief. And you're like, there's just so many like little things that end up tying into future things and later things. And it's, and like the joke about him, he's just like, you're not a eunuch, are you? And just how that comes back all the time is back, so yes. great. <laughs> I, I love um, like it, just even dead man's just, just, when they, when they have them all tied up, it's just like a hey, eunuchy snip snip uh, is great. I love, I love uh, the way they write, they write these movies. One more short scene I want to touch on. Uh, Jack and Elizabeth on the island. Because I love this little bit of dialogue. I love this back and forth. And I like these these characters have such chemistry. It, it's so good. Um, but the scene in particular, obviously, when uh, Jack wakes up and Elizabeth is burning all the rum. Why is the rum gone? Yes, the rum's gone. One, because it is a vile drink that turns even the most respectable men into complete scoundrels. Two, that signal is over a thousand feet high. The entire Royal Navy is looking out for me. But why is the rum gone? <laughs> and I just love, I love the comedic timing of that. And um, we're going to talk about her shortly because she's definitely my favorite, one of my favorite characters in the film. But we get to see Elizabeth not being a damsel in distress, being assertive, taking the reins and making things happen. But as you sort of said about the button with Pirate and that other scene, the button on this one cracks me up where uh, you see the Dauntless coming and he just goes, there'll be no living with her after this because <laughs> that is my life. <laughs> I tell that to my family all the time. I'm like, can you just be on, on the same page as me? Because I'm usually right about these sorts of things. So I love I love the scene. Um, is this one of the standout scenes to you uh, growing I up? Is this like fun comedic moments? This was always when I was a kid, one of the scenes where I was like, okay, I'm going to check out of this part because then we're going to get back to the main movie. And then the, like, when you're a kid, there's no action. So you're like, you're like, oh, whatever. But the more you go up and watch the scene, this is like one of the best scenes in the movie, just on like a filmmaking aspect alone, just to like how great their chemistry is. And just when they start to put them out on this, where they maroon them, where he's just like, you recognize that island. You recognize that island. So it was where we left you last time. It's my favorite part where they're like, we took you right back to where we left you, and now you have to find a way to get off again. Um, and the thing that I love, and like you, I I didn't notice this as a kid or realize this as a kid. Just like I, you always believe sea turtles is like the way he gets off the island, and like they always <laughs> joke about it and reference it. But like this movie just fully is like jack obviously makes this legend up and this is the real way out there's just this whole supply is how he's able to survive on the island and he shows her just wraps just tears his own myth down so that they can survive and just seeing the way that he kind of is forced to trust her and she's forced to trust him even though they've like 
really had a major impact on each other's lives in a very small, brief window of time. And now they're like stuck together. Um, I love it. I also love the way that they uh, bring the theme park song in. I love that Yoho is brought in in this moment. It's like one of the big over Easter eggs um, of just having them do that song. And just the the way he's just, oh, I love this song. And Phil's, <laughs> I love it. I adore that part. Uh, and you're right. The button on this is so great. And Johnny Depp, um, I, I still think it's the coolest Oscar nomination of all time for them to nominate him for this performance. It's like undeniably good of just being able to like, button these scenes and be so funny but like not trying to be just so desperate and just so good in every single scene of this performance you ain't never had a friend like me let's get into our characters and we've got to start with captain jack sparrow actually that was one of my questions for you what do you think about this oscar nomination because uh, when i was 12 i was just starting to get into oscars and sort of things like that so of course this is who i wanted to win because it's one of the only five nominations that i had seen uh, not realizing at the time how much of a stigma current Oscars is about um, comedic performances. Like back in the day, we see a lot of comedic performances, but now it tends to be purely dramatic roles. So not knowing that he had not a chance in hell of winning. Like I highly thought because yeah. it was such a good good performance. And again, it's the one I've seen. Um, now being such an Oscar lovers, what is your take on it? Um, I, I, I love this nomination and honestly, I really do. Having seen most of the nominees think he should have won. I think it's, it's truly one of those performances that you look at and you're like, it's, it, it's one of those times where the Academy is like this blockbuster performance is undeniable to not recognize in its year. It's such a towering presence of a performance that like, you just don't see the actor in. Like, I, I know everyone at this point is like, oh, it's Johnny Depp doing the Johnny Depp thing. But it's like, this is when you at watch him do not. this. Yeah. It's so not Johnny Depp. It's just when you see him in like things like Sippy Hollow or Ed Wood or or Edward Scissorhands, you're just looking at all of his stuff. He's like such a 21 Jump Street teen heartthrob, and now he's Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones <laughs> as the pirate. And it's just so nuts to see him just embody this fully realized character in one go. It's such a great nomination. And that takes not to take anything away from like Sean Penn, who won because it is a great performance, or Bill Murray in Lost Translation, who a lot of people think should have won. I think that Johnny Depp is just a, a really talented actor, um, and he does something so special here. I, to me, it's it's a performance on the level of like Heath Ledger's Joker, where it's like this person has created something super unique and special that just transcends what you would expect to win an Oscar that you just can't deny it. And like, I think Johnny Depp really should have won off that back, but yeah. I, I somewhat, I agree with, um, I, I love the parallel to Heath Ledger's Joker because I, I think that's correct. These are people that have immersed themselves so deeply that they've become it. And that's just so fascinating that you can see that I, I do truly wonder like what is choice and what is instinct? in this character because it's just so that he blurs the line so well and yeah I again I, having posters around it and things like that like this just became the face of what pirates is now like this changed pop culture to what we consider now is our go-to prototype of a pirate it's no longer like the Errol Flynn sort of type it's it's Johnny Depp if, if you go and get a pirate costume nine times out of ten it's gonna be a Captain Jack Sparrow one at this point right what are some of the um, character choices in the film that you like about it and why you think it, it has made such an impact and such a success? So I, the, the way I view this performance is, is um, I take him in very much just as he is in this absolute chaotic force. And the more I've 
grown up and like looked into the story, the like giant up being the 40th choice for this part. And the people that they list Walken was like the first choice. And you're like, you think about people like Christopher Walken and Sean Penn who were like up for this part and like what they would have done with it and how weird that would have been in comparison or just how like a straightforward pirate they would have played it or how like charismatic or different it would have been. I just think then you see what he does and how he subverts every expectation you would have for the character, every choice you would have never expected him to be walking around swaying with his arms like this or, uh, or to just, um, I, I think having his the way he uses his hands and encroaches on personal space is a really deliberately brilliant choice. Um, it just tells you everything about this person that like he's while he is not a good pirate and not and an extremely lucky person he's also a very intelligent person um and that when you look at him the intentional decisions to throw people off is by using his like breath and his lack of hygiene and to get into the close with people so it throws them off and like disorients them while he's talking and just so it just he throws off all their senses at once uh, in one go so that he can make what seems to be a lucky break happen. He's like a master of distraction in every way to the point where like, when you see him on the Illa de Huerta and he walks through and they're like, that's not possible, not probable. Uh, it's just like so great to then just walk through and mess with so many people and disarm everyone. He's it's, that's probably the best word to describe Jack Sparrow in every character choice is just, he's such a disarming presence in every scene of this movie. I love that because he's definitely um, living in his own little delusional world and he's just crafted it around himself and it's fantastic. So as you sort of said, the swagger or um, when Elizabeth agrees to marry Norita, it's like, oh, I love weddings. Like it just, it's the guards that have him in chains and just like no awareness for that or just maybe not even caring. It's just like, this is what I'm going to say. Like it's just creature of instinct sometimes is Jack Sparrow and that's just great. But then as you said, I love the flip-flop or the juxtaposition between the two of when he does craft a plan like to steal um, the, uh, what's the British ship, not the Dauntless, the in Interceptor? Interceptor, yeah. Um, to steal that, like, and when you see that all happen, or even at the end, when he can play straight and serious, that's what makes it even more effective, because you, you, you're not, you don't see it coming, you're not used to them, him actually having a plan and it paying off, or just being able to lead that deception, that backstabbing, things like that, the fact that he picks up on Will. And I want to get into Will, but I love that Will's not fooled by that as well. So I think everyone around the film balances out Jack Sparrow, which is for the betterment of the film. Definitely. Uh, Jack Sparrow, and it's it's the number one criticism people have for each sequel as they go on, is that Jack is more and more the main character for these movies. But I argue he is the main character of the first one as well. It's just that the difference between the first three and the new two is that you have Will and Elizabeth as characters, which helps segue us into that part, but they, they, you have such grounded, well-focused characters that are part of an adventure that Jack Sparrow happens to be a part of, that it's not, this is Jack's story and they're a part of it. It's just the way that that first trilogy works is that really it is Will and Elizabeth's story and Jack is a protagonist and a major force within that three act structure of a story. Um, and that when it becomes Jack's, primarily focused story in the next two it's not as fun because it's you're finally living the perspective of jack sparrow through these movies and it's exhausting um it's very hard to channel just jack's vision into these stories and that's why like the reason the first three are so great um and are so well told is that you are juggling 
three full character arcs at once, and Jack just happens to be the most bankable for the story of the three, but the, the, the story of the other two is just as important. It's also really hard because I tend to love um, the first in trilogy. So I love Fellowship the most or I, I love mm. things like that because you're getting all that set up and everything's still new and exciting. So I think that's what's the strength of this film as well is you getting to see the romance between Will and Elizabeth Blossom. So as you sort of said, having Jack be doing his side adventures over here, that's sort of like Venn diagramming <laughs> along the way with them is, right. is what's successful. But let's get into some of that. Uh, what is your take on, I nearly said Elizabeth Bennett, different Kira Knightley performance, Elizabeth Swan. <laughs> what is your take on Elizabeth Swan, Miss Swan? So I think Elizabeth Swan is maybe one of my favorite characters in all the film, just full stop. I think she is she is such a well-written character from movie one to movie three, and her journey is one of my favorite character arcs on film. Um we like she gets overshadowed in this franchise a lot in the conversation because of how towering Jack Sparrow is or how great the villains always are. But I think the element that Keira Knightley brings to this is so it's so essential to the DNA of the franchise. Um, which is actually why the most frustrating element to me of the fifth one is that she's in one scene and doesn't say a word. Um, is it it drives me nuts. Uh, because she is so so fun. Um, just from moment one, from the beginning, where there's where they're just like she, meeting young her is just. I think it'd be fun to meet a pirate. And you're just like this is not your normal kid. But then, like when she grows up and she like becomes normal, but she doesn't quite fit into that world. And you could tell she's not like a socialite, socialite. Even though she's the governor's daughter, she just doesn't quite fit into that reality. And to I think Karen Knightley plays that so well um, that she's. She's supposed to want to be with the Commodore, but she is in love with a blacksmith's apprentice. And it's like, there's so many things about her that are not normal, that when pirates come, her bravery and her adventurous side kicks in, and her first instinct is, take me to the captain. I will put my life on the line to save an entire city of people that I know, and my father and Will and everyone that I know, uh, because... Uh, of my status in the city, I will use that to bargain for the life of everyone else, despite the fact that I don't belong in the city that I live in and I don't belong in the life that I live in. And to see her go from really on the broad spectrum of it, the governor's daughter who doesn't fit in to the pirate king of the Caribbean by the end of the third movie, I think is truly like such an arc that is plotted so well, that fits so smartly from that first introduction of her as a kid. I, I love it. This is definitely like a standout character and I'm so happy to hear your praise of it because sometimes like I can see her coming across as um, a bit shrill or not as well liked as some of the other characters, which I find really, like when I was watching this one through, I'm like, she is the heart of the film and she is the driving force of this first film. She is smart, she is strong, she is a self-assured female character, she's not your damsel in distress. I love, as you sort of said, her first instinct is to step up and go to the captain. But the fact that she just even is knowledgeable about it, as you said, she's not a typical governor's daughter, tea parties, dresses, or that sort of functions or that sort of thing. Like she knows pirate code. She has a passion for pirates, which, again, is just so great. Um, she can survey a scene and not be a damsel in distress. So when she's having dinner with Barbosa, like it's pocketing the knife. It's thinking the apple is poisoned. It's just being aware and cognizant of what's happening. She knows enough to give a false name. Love that she picks wheels as well. Like, because obviously yeah. that's giving up our plot points. She makes smoke signals. She knows ships and how to direct it. As I was watching this, I'm like, oh my goodness. Like she really went above and beyond 
to, as I sort of said, be the driving force and moving the whole story forward on, on her back. And I think it's just, it's fantastic. I, I totally agree. I think she is really the heart of the first movie. Uh, and I, I I think, I I get so much garbage from a lot of people for being like, when I make my own personal Oscars and Care Knightley makes it all three movies. Like, I know her for all three. I think she is such a great performance through all three movies because it's so, it's so true to the core element, but it's a different, like, person each time you see it because so much has happened. And I, I do, I, I fully love, I agree, like, that she... Um, like you said, she's just aware. She's just constantly like it's such a great subversion of what you see in things like the classic musical The Pirate or like in Cutthroat Island or other pirate movies where it's like like G Gina Davis in that movie is not aware of anything that's happening for like yeah. the first 30 minutes of Cutthroat Island. And it's like it's it's just like my favorite element of her in that first bit with Barbosa. Where it's just parlay, and she knows under the captain of the code written by uh, the keepers Morgan and Bartholomew, is just like she knows all the specific details. She rattles it and off. She's ready. Yeah, and here's she's my sources. And the here's my citations. To the point where the pirates themselves are like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> like, you know more about this than the people who are living the life." And I love it. Where it's just like you could tell that she just was so fascinated that she learned all this stuff. And you could tell, like, she learned it because she wanted to, and she did it in secret. And part of me wonders if maybe Gibbs at the beginning is part of her sources from uh, in between, um, because I love, we'll get to him later. Uh, but I love um, when she's on the boat and she's like, the, the thing you're all after, this. And they're just like playing so dumb about it. And she's like, well, if you guys don't want it, and she's about to drop it, and they freak. It's such a great, it's such a great. Instinct. And the, her performance, it's the button on that part. That's the her face, face immediately the after. face, yes! Sheer Knightley is is such an underappreciated actress. It's wild to me that I think she only has like one, maybe two Oscar nominations to her name. Um, because she's so talented uh, in subtle face movement. And she's also really good at giving really rousing speeches. And I love that the first one... It, it doesn't work at all where she's like gives them all the speeches like you got the boat but now we got to go save the guys who's with me and the immediate cut is her on a robot she's like pirates it's such a great joke and a great moment too that they just like read like i i know that we're supposed to really only be focusing on the first but i love the way that like at world's end then ties that in where that she gives she gets to give the speech of the franchise and rousing and that leads an army of pirates into a whirlpool like it's just the the growth chart is so like insane to me um i love elizabeth Swan, like so much uh let's get into uh mr will turner then how do you find orlando bloom and this performance obviously it's got to be the straight man because we need someone yeah. to balance out all the chaos that's happening so it's a necessary character and i think it's hard to play in these ones without coming across boring but i think orlando bloom does a really good job because you need someone with that heart and that moral compass to sort of go through and as you as we've sort of been saying the growth throughout the series is is insane what are your thoughts on will in this film so I think that in the first one, it's probably the most boring of the three Orlando Blue performances, not necessarily because it's bad, just because like it's the first one. But I love his energy regardless. Um, I love that he kind of steps up to the plate of your typical adventure leading man and ultimately gets flipped into being not like super overtly or dumbly. In a lot of ways, he's the damsel in distress of the story where he's like, I'm coming to save Elizabeth. And then Elizabeth saves him. Or, like, he goes in and Jack double-crosses him and it's Elizabeth that gets him out of it or Jack has to save him out of it. And it's not like he's obnoxiously getting in the way on these things. It's just that 
it's that he's it's the opposite where like elizabeth is so fully aware of a scene will's not will is i'm rushing in head first to do the job that i think i need to do because it's down to just the beginning where it's norrington is like you don't mistake yourself as the only man here who cares for elizabeth and his bullish just like that's not good enough stabbing the map like you're not doing what needs to be done to the point where then he breaks out jack and norrington's like rash turner too rash uh, where it's just he he throws himself into a world he doesn't understand, <clears throat> which uh, I love. I think the thing that they do that that is able to sort of remedy what normally would be a really boring character and a boring performance is the way that it ties into the rest of the world around him, where then his character is not just uh, the the one dimensional. I'm here to save a girl. I'm really into. It becomes this is my destiny and this is a world I've always meant to be a part of. And I am fighting that once I'm in it, I'm just fighting to get out of it. I'm just at this point, I just want to get Elizabeth and get out of it because I don't want to be here when he finds out that his dad is bootstrap. Um, who is yeah, referenced tying into in that family passing. such a strong point of the film. Right. And when he's finding, and like the fact that Jack knows his dad and now he's having interactions with Jack and like the past coming back. And yeah, I, I think that that's a fantastic through line throughout everything now and as you sort of said we get that set up set up here which is great are there any other characters you wanted to touch on who else stands out to you so in the film? so my personal favorite character of the entire series is joshua gibbs uh i adore joshua gibbs i think that there's something so special about a character who is just so devoted to a person like and it's not just this blind I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. It's this just true bond of friendship and loyalty that is tested constantly and that he's honestly treated so bad. And I love, that's actually my favorite joke in the fourth one is they make a joke about it where he's like, this is my, this is my first Meg Gibbs who I've honestly treated like dog treated. He's just like, well, now that you mentioned it, they move right on past it. Uh, but I, I love what Gibbs offers to the series because in a way his, his narrative function is to be the expositionary machine. To just <laughs> give... It's to give the audience the necessary information they need in any scene, but no one in any movie ever is able to deliver that exposition in a more riveting and just like, like I can't take my eyes off of a manner than Kevin R. McNally as Josh me gives where it's just when they're on, like, I think my favorite one is on the boat when he's talking about how Jack got off the Island where it's just like, and he's like this and these pistols just look real friendly and the way he like acts it and delivers the scenes and it's so great um and i but like the thing that i really love about him is like i said just the the true devotion he has to jack throughout these movies where it's just he's asleep in the pink and they go get him he splash water on him and he's just like and he's just wakes up in a rage and he's just like my god jack sparrow and it's just like, it's not, and it's not a like, oh my God, my hero's here. Oh my God, my meal ticket's here. It's this true look of like, my best friend has just come back for me. And I love it. I love the way they are, especially when they're sitting on the, and then they go in, they sit at the table, which that seems a great button to where he's splashed. That's what that one's for the smell. Um, but just Will standing there over listening to them where he's like, I've got leverage. And just where he's just like, hmm. I change, uh, <laughs> he says, I change in the wind, says I, and uh, take what you can, give nothing back. That <laughs> is such is, a good um, toast. It's my favorite. It's my, it's my go-to, actually. My roommate and I will do that all the time uh, when, we're, when we're out drinking. That is our go-to toast, is take what you can, give nothing back. 
Um, but I, I adore their friendship through and through, through all the movies, but especially in this first one, I, I think it's so, it's so special, um, to the point where like Gibbs, his own personal arc is not very well talked about it, where it's like in the beginning of the movie, he is part of the British Navy and like knows all the pirate things to then being on Jack's team. And then Jack sort of coming back from Tortuga. And then when Gibbs leaves him behind and they're like, you left, he, the crew left you behind Jack. So he's like, they're just doing right by them. And like, he's not like upset about it, but Gibbs comes back anyway. And it's just the saving him from the gallows and that full complete moment, giving him the hat and putting the jacket around his shoulders and setting him at the wheel and drink up parties, yo-ho and off to the next adventure. It's just Gibbs to me is my favorite. Gibbs is my personal favorite character in all these movies. It's such a great little bromance and it does, it, it gives me Mr. Smee, but like a step up, like not so degrading, not so demeaning, like more right. on uh, as equal as possible level. The defining trait about Gibbs that I just love is that he's just up for anything. Like no matter how crazy the plan's like, yeah, we just, we're just going to go in and do it. And it's definitely the most uh, traditional performance of a pirate I think you see in the films, like what you would think yeah. of if you're thinking pirates, like especially in like the appearance and in the speech patterns and things like that. So I think it's one of those um, necessary characters that fleshes out our world a lot more and gives it a, that more, it gives it that swashbuckling feel as well as having characters like this peppered out throughout it. Listen well, all of you. Let's get into some of our favourite quotes. I think we have said them all yeah, at this a lot point. Of them, yeah. But it, it is a very quotable film. As I'm watching through again, I'm like, no wonder, like, a lot of these just happen to be those film quotes that you tend to say off, off the cuff. So um, this is the day you will always remember as the day you almost caught Captain Jack Sparrow has definitely become the I have a bad feeling about this or I've made a huge mistake of the franchise where you're hearing it again and again. Uh, what are some of the ones that stand out to you, Caleb? Um, I, I think my favorite one is you best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner, you're in one. Um, just Please because of the delivery. Can you brush. deliver the monologue? Because I oh, love it. I, was I, like, I, I, I can I do love, it, but please, I hope Caleb does it. <laughs> I Oh, I have to bring it up in front of me. Uh, I, I love the monologue <laughs> so much. But just, uh, just like, I know we're all going to end up talking about Jeffrey Rush anyway. Um, but... Mm -hmm. That line to me um, is so is such a perfect button. Um, it's like it's just it's it's so scary in that delivery, um, and just in that sort of monologue through and just buttoning it. It's my favorite. Um, it's the one that I will use off the cuff all the time. For too long, I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing. The wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea, nor the warmth of a woman's flesh. You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. Aaron one is that's the oh. best I can do of it. But I, I adore that monologue and that ending. I love that part. It's such a good villain monologue, and and we will start talking about Jeffrey Ross shortly because um he doesn't overplay it. It's not overbaked in the performance which just sells it even more and the best part the best part is when he just um steps into the moonlight pops off the cork bottle with his teeth spits it out and you see that wine drain through his skeleton torso oh it's so good and then that it's so good after it's the slamming the doors turn around the and just the jeffrey rush laugh it's the Barbosa laugh that comes, like, every time you hear it, the context of that changing over the course of five movies is ridiculous. That in this one, it's, like, a terrifying laugh. To the second one, it's such a, like, oh, shit. To the third one, it's the laugh of a friend. 
and it's that way to the end mm. is oh that's that's such a great growth where that laugh changes what it means to you through each one but just just his laugh in this one is just so just terrifying and and to have it come back in our world set it's like almost a battle cry <laughs> where he's just <laughs> where he's just now be the day where we sway and true ah! just starts swinging at people on the maelstrom is nuts it's i love his laugh so much one song i have put one song let's get into the score of it all uh what are your thoughts on this because um i've always thought of this as just a purely hans zimmer score i didn't realize that he only just sort of came in and what i've read quick wikipedia search as one does um is that he just sort of very almost jack sparrow in a way swooped in did everything in a night or two and then swooped out it seems to be the story what are your thoughts on the score uh, this score, I think the score for this one is really good. I think Klaus Fedelt's score for this movie is really good, but also very light in a weird way. Like the the way that I, it's it's not the version of the themes you think of most when you think of the franchise. Um, that when you watch this, you you like the themes that the music, the Jack Sparrow theme comes along, and the Will and Elizabeth theme comes along um from this one and they're all created here but the way they sound and the musical notes that are used and the instruments used are dead man's chest and on when hans zimmer actually does the score um just the the grandness and the 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 scale of the music matches more dead man's chest and on when they like add like it goes from being like we have the budget for a 50-piece orchestra because we're in the end of the of the you know the ike perlmutter <laughs> Disney era and now we're into and now we're into Disney has money and we're not afraid to throw it around the whole um the beginning of the MCU era where it's like now we can drop a hundred million dollars on just a Hans Zimmer score and building it the right way and having the right pieces um they like clearly go from like a 50-piece orchestra to like a 500-piece orchestra from movie one to two but the way the music I think there's something so undeniable about what Bedelt does just with the score um and that while it's not the version I will listen to often, I oftentimes will go to the At World's End and Dead Man's Chest soundtracks to listen to the themes because I prefer them. I think that the bones of it are just so powerful and undeniable musically, where it's just the sound of adventure to me is the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. If you were to like channel what a genre sounds like into just a sound, it's either the Pirates of the Caribbean theme or the Indiana Jones theme. And I think both those musical themes together are so strong and i i love i think my favorite themes of the movies might be things zimmer creates later like davy jones's theme but my favorite theme from the bedelt score is the jack sparrow theme the and just like that like off pace off tempo run where it's just um and it, the way it swells into the pirates theme for the young credits is my favorite thing ever where it's just that like slow off-tempo build that feels just like he does where it's not quite in order and it's not quite combobulated and it tells me everything i need to know about this person until it all comes together and it's the pirates of the caribbean theme and i think that that's my favorite part of the score is that every theme musically i think just only serves to deepen your understanding of everything you're seeing every person you're seeing in the movie 
definitely I agree. Like the it's called he's a pirate, isn't it? Like the ending thing, like the yeah. Jack Sparrow, he's a pirate. And like how much more bluntly or better could you put that? Uh it definitely evokes swashbuckling. I've I've written in my notes as well, like high adventure. It's high, it's that next like how we get high fantasy, it's high adventure, it's that next level. Mm-hmm. I love how you sort of say how the off tempo is very representative of Jack. To me, it's representative of the ocean and waves and that back and forth and that rocking of a ship. So that's sort of what I pick up through through that one there. And I think that's what the score does really well is puts you on the ocean waters. And that's just something really special. It's when you're scoring for water scenes, you really have to take that into account as opposed to like land-based battles. So that uh, not to keep comparing to Lord of the Rings, but that's sort of the difference between like the shore score to the scores so that those are the, the differences I can make in that one there. Are there any other pieces that stand out to you? Um, I think one of the other ones that I love a lot is Will and Elizabeth's theme. Um, they have this really beautiful, like, swell of a, of a theme that, like, for a lot, like, I think a lot of the music can blend together in one's mind as just all being Pirates of the Caribbean. But when you, like, really break down the different themes of who's is who's and, like, what it adds to each character the, and the way they reincorporate it and bring it back is that I think... The way that Will and Elizabeth's individual themes, which are really only used in this one and then a little bit in a little bit others, is I love that they have little individual themes that are merged as halves to the same whole, that when you listen to them individually, you feel like you're listening to half a score until you hear them together. And then you're like, that is the, that is the theme. Now it feels like a complete piece of music. And I, I love what that says. And I love how brilliant Bedelt and Zimmer were in that case to create it that way. Um, and I, I love how, like, with Wills, Wills is very optimistic and very, like, it's this very bright, like, sort of hero's journey feeling song. And Elizabeth is so much more complex. It's this very, like, it's so it's a so much more complex musical piece that you could tell that, like, it's she has the melody and he has the harmony. And they each individually sound good on their own. But when you put them together, that's what the song is supposed to sound like. I love it. This is your badness level. Uh, We've danced around him a little bit. Let's get into how evil is the villain? Hector Barbosa. Did not know it was Hector for like the longest time. It was always just Captain Barbosa to me. And then I think I remember playing like Kingdom Hearts 2 and it's like, it's Hector Barbosa. I'm like, oh, really? Um, Barbosa, on a scale of 1 to 10, where does he land? What are his motives? How do you view this villain? So I, I... I, I have had this argument with Cody so many times uh, where I think in this one, he is a brilliant antagonist, but I would never necessarily, I, he's a villain of the story, but I would never call him a villain as a character where it's the same thing where you could do this with Jack Sparrow and anything. You can make Jack Sparrow the villain of this movie if you really wanted to, but he's not an antagonist or the antagonist and not the villain. Um, and that's why like when people are like, oh, in the future movies, they really ruined him by making him a protagonist. It's like, no. It's just now he, it serves that character to be on the side of the story that we are following, and it adds a lot. And so, and I love that fundamentally that character doesn't change. When you swap which side he's on, it just changes how you view him because he's now on your side. Because what what Jeffrey Rush does in this movie is truly, I think, embody what we think a pirate is. He, I think that he, to me, is what a pirate is in the general public's mind um, as a, like, the big hat and the clothes and the, like, the beard and the hair. Like, Jeffrey Rush just is a pirate captain out for gold. And at the end of the day, Barbosa is terrifying when you're on the wrong side of him. He is such a ferocious, clever, manipulative human. 
which makes it, which is like why I, I, I never need to see it. So please, Disney, don't make that prequel. But like, I can imagine in my own mind the story of Barbosa and Jack and their friendship and how it falls apart and how we get to Curse of Black Pearl and how it comes to a point where these two men end up one killing the other is like so poetic to the point where I don't need the backstory. I think the movie gives me enough of this backstory just the way these two interact and I can do the rest on my own. And I love that Barbosa is just so, in reality, he's a better captain. He's more suited to be a captain. And you can totally understand how he can lead a group of people towards a treasure and that's like i love the moment where it doesn't work and the momentary panic that everyone has where it's like we we were better off with jack like you fucked us you got us all switched <laughs> and he instantly just shoots one of them and he's like no settle down and it's just like that moment where you're like oh he's more willing to do cd things than jack is he's willing to go the extra couple steps to get what he wants to do what he needs to do and i think that's what makes him the most freaky uh, as a villain, where it's just when we view him in this one, he's willing to portray Jack. He's willing to portray Elizabeth. He doesn't. He's willing to kill Elizabeth. He doesn't care. But the thing that I do like, that I think does hint, especially when you see the sequels, that he is a lot like Jack. That he doesn't want to hurt people necessarily. He has no issue doing it, but it's not his primary goal. Is when he has Elizabeth and he has her head over the thing, and you think they're gonna slit her throat, and he pulls out her hand. And he goes, "Best not to waste." And just cuts the hand and lets it bleed. Where he's like, "We're not going to cut your throat. We're just going to take a little bit. I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to hurt you really, really bad." Sort of thing. Um, and I think that that's such a hard line for Rush to play. Whereas in this first one, he's like, "I'm the bad guy," and he hams it up and has so much fun. He's so scary, but he also is able to leave those notes of a redeemable, decent human is in this. In the point where he's almost a gentleman pirate, as opposed to Jack Sparrow's yes. chaotic pirate. Yes, I love that. Uh, especially as you sort of said, like it, it brings a bit of lightness to it. So it's not just a doom and gloom, uh, pillage and plunder sort of pirate, even though we see it, but it's not just killing for the sake of it. It's very, um, the ends justify the means is his way of thinking. And so if the means isn't that he needs to kill Elizabeth, he's not going to. It's not just there to just cause like havoc or pain. It's just that he wants to move on like he wants to feel human again like he needs to get rid of this curse so he's just going to do whatever means justify that end um but pretty evil in the sense of like conducting a mutiny like that's just like the biggest no-go you can have of the pirate life so god the the thing that that they they don't they say it and i think they do an even better job of illustrating it in words of the sequel is the way they talk about how they killed bootstrap bill yeah. is is i think the most that's the most villainous thing he does is is how and i and the thing is you can totally see why he would do it and his methodology is that i need to make a point about what happens to people who side with the person that i need to get rid of in order to get to my treasure and get what i need because then like when he said when the when the curse is lifted and he shoots pintle and it's like nothing happens it's to him, he was like, I'm willing to sacrifice Pintle to find out if we're alive or not because he doesn't mean anything to me. And it makes an example because he's the first person to question whether or not we succeeded. And, like, I love yeah. that methodology is consistent. Like, his logic is consistent throughout the whole series. Um, but the the image in my mind of tying a man by his boots to a cannon and dropping it is terrifying. And it's even worse when, like, for most people, they're like, that's a plot hole. They, the, the, he, was, he wouldn't have been cursed, so he wouldn't have died. He'd just be stuck down there. Why would he have Davy Jones? The fact of the matter is that they are able to answer that 
so succinctly in like three sentences in Dead Man's Chest, where it's like, no, he was down there, undead, <laughs> floating forever <laughs> until Davy Jones was like, I can get you out of here, otherwise you're stuck, and just basically kills him as a sweet release to be on his crew. And it's just this most like, it's this super harrowing thing that I'm so glad that they had Ted Elliott and Terry Rosio write this movie because they're so good at dialogue and language and they're so descriptive. And that's the thing that I love about this movie is that I can see everything they want me to see, whether it is told to me or shown to me. And I can just view when Pinto and Regetti are telling the story where Pintle's just like, I'm telling the story, and turns back and goes, so, we tied bootstraps, bootstraps to the cannon, and Brigade's just like, bootstraps, bootstraps, right behind him and everything. It's just like, the way that he's like, hype manning Pintle, which I love those two. Yes! So much. I love those two in all of these, um, and I wish they were back in five or four, any of them, bring them back. Um, but the, the way that they like, deliver that to you is like a ghost story. It's so scary. Absolutely. And as you so said, it builds up um, the legacy around Barbosa and what he is. And I love the casting choice of Jeffrey Rush because I think you need a stage actor to deliver that sort of things. And I think I read somewhere about Gore Verbinski saying that um, you need someone who can play a complex character but simply come across on screen. So all those motivations do play on screen without, as, as we sort of said before, like going over the top or going over baked with it. So the the, it's one of those ones that's very tied to Jeffrey Rush. Like I think makes that character really successful and really takes that to the next level. Definitely. And I think that's the nice thing about all the, like to give a quick shot to all five of these, uh, the villains are never the problem in any of these movies to the point where they are almost the highlight reel of each movie is that they, they get such brilliant actors to play these really complex, terrifying people. Where, like, you have Bill Nighy playing probably one of the greatest screen villains of all time in David Jones. But you also, not talking about Tom Hollander, who is Beckett, is in this really not talked about or appreciative villain role. Or even Jack Davenport, and this is Norrington, is just, like, these really talented, not necessarily superstars. Bill Nighy is an exception. But, like, superstars to play these parts. And, like, even then when you get Ian McShane and Javier Bardem and the other ones, where they really are able to, they're having fun. They're hamming it up more than the other guys, but they're still able to give you what the other guys gave you. Is like, I love what they do with villains in the series. Practically perfect in every way. Caleb, is there anything we haven't touched on today or any way you want to sort of wrap up our discussion about Price of the Caribbean? I, I do want to real quickly give a shout to Norrington again, because I, I, I love what Jack Davenport does in the series. Um, and I, I think in this one is is, is so thankless of a part for him to play and a thankless character to have the in the 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 law enforcement insert that you need to have otherwise this is just pirate on pirate action and to have the royal navy personified in a career man who uh is just he doesn't even have a vendetta it's just this is my job is i have to go get these guys and bring them in and hang them and i take necessarily it's not that he takes any pleasure in it necessarily but he has a certain responsibility. And then on top of that, he has a love for Elizabeth that drives him the extra mile where it's like, I need to save her. And like, I love that in all of these, that even though he knows he won't be with her and that he necessarily can't win her back, is the love is still there to the point where it will decide his life at the end. Where it's like, he would, you can tell, like in every line he gives where it's the, don't mistake yourself as the only man here who cares for Elizabeth is such a like 
cutting but revealing line where it's not just this isn't just like a marriage of status between two people this is like he actually really has feelings for this human um and he's willing to jump into the rocks to save her to the point where at the end i i i give jack davenport all the credit in the world on this one where at the very end where he's like is this where your heart truly lies and you can hear the heartbreak in his voice and you can see the pain and the sadness in his eyes to know that to make this person that he cares about really happy he has to let her be with someone who actively just committed a massive crime. <laughs> um, and he's just like, and he's like, uh, and like, and that also leads into what I think is such a, a great character revealing moment at the end too, where he's just like, he, where he like lets her go. And Elizabeth's response too is like in that moment where she's like, yes. And the pains in her voice too, or it's not pain that she's doing it. It's pain that she's hurting someone that she doesn't have any ill will towards. And it's like this really sweet, I, the wrong, Tenelli Terry Rosio can write romance like any better than anyone, and we don't give them credit for it. Um, but they uh to then bring him back again in two as like a totally disgraced person for the ending of this movie, where it's just the well, I think we can afford to give them a few days head start, as his like sort of way of being like, <laughs> for Elizabeth and Will's sake, I'm not gonna go after Jack immediately. I'm just gonna let them go. And to then hear through exposition, he's tried to chase them through a hurricane. And lost his entire crew, lost his commission, lost everything. Is now a slum on Tortuga, which drives his force to come back to the Indian company and becomes an admiral by betraying them again. And even in two, where he has that line after Elizabeth and Jack have their moment, he's like, there was a day where I would have, would have given anything for you to look at that way at me. Is like such a great yes. line to then come back to in the third one, where then he gives his life to save Elizabeth. To like let them cross to the ship that they need to escape, and is just like belay the order, and like pulls out his sword and lets boot, and essentially lets his guard down go enough where he he has the choice to leave with her, and instead chooses to shoot the rope, let them leave and die, so that she can live because he knows if he goes, they both die, and that's no good. I think Jack Davenport gets such a bad rap for a character that is so thankless, but is so good in all three of these movies. So every little character in this movie is so great and like plays I'm, such a unique part in the story. I'm so happy you said thankless again, because when you said it the first time, I was like, that is exactly what I'm going to mimic in a second, because that is the best descriptor for it. And it's definitely a factor that we hadn't talked about yet as much as that. Um, I like how you sort of said that we need that law and order aspect to it, because otherwise it does become too, you've got three forces throughout the film. You've got like our hero pirates, our supernatural villain pirates, and then the, the British Royal Navy side of it all. So you need those three different forces all sort of coming together and who's against who. So you need straight line people. And it's just it um, embodies the setting of it all because I think a lot of these set pieces in the setting of Port Royal, of Tortuga, all these island nations of the Caribbean um, really brings the movie to life, which is just so great. So I love seeing the ships and the work and the red coats and things like that. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's just a necessary element that I think the more I think about, the more I think about, like, I just rewatched four and five too, just to like get the full scope of like what I'm talking about with everything again. And it's just when you look at the two that I don't love as much as the first three and you analyze what went wrong, the big thing I just realized with five is there's no law and order element. Like that's a movie where they basically streamlined a pirates movie down to the four or five set pieces that happened throughout a pirates movie, which is why like, which is why my criticism of five is that it's too short. It comes in at just under two hours. And most people are like, 
that's you know a good length for a blockbuster. But for a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, all these run two and a half hours, two hours forty-five, because there's a whole lore that needs to be told in order to make these worlds what they are and why we love them. And so, like when five is just like, here's the villain, here's the hero, hero's down in his luck, villain finds him, they're on the run. There's this weird extra extra frilly set piece over here that we always have in these movies. But this time it feels really pointless. And then we're going to have the giant ending supernatural thing where we get the artifact. And it's like, but there's never really been an artifact to find. That was only in four and kind of two. Is that that's the only time there's actually ever been a treasure to find in these movies. Like the, this one is so unique also where it's like everyone thinks when you're in a Pirates movie, you have to go find a treasure. This one's so unique in the sense that we already have the treasure. We're trying to put it back. Like, we have to put yeah. the treasure back to fix the characters who would normally be looking for it. Like, we basically are coming in at the end of a Pirates movie that you traditionally would see and seeing the adventure of how to fix the movie that you didn't see. <laughs> and I think that's that's such a crazy idea to me of how to structure a movie. So that, like, when two and three come around, two and, th like, two is, like, we're actually doing a treasure hunt. And that's why two is super fun, is it's, like, it's, like, a $500 million treasure hunt with characters that we already just spent a whole movie understanding and liking the motivations of, and then uh, 45 minutes establishing what the new motivations are, so that when we go on the treasure hunt, it has huge stakes that will ratify the whole universe. And then three is so funny because it's the first movie again. We have to put the thing back that we just stole in order to reverse the thing we just did. And that's what's so unique about that trilogy on a structural level, so that when like four and five come around, it's like, we're going to get a thing and we never, and like they're just traditional treasure hunt movies, and they lose the element of what makes those first three so fun is just that like swell of like, really, there's never been a treasure to find. It's been a treasure to return. And I think that's super cool. Kayla, I think that just wraps up like the final point that I wanted to make. Like my last note is that like, what is good start of a legacy? What great sea legs to build a universe on is this first right. film. Honestly, thank you so much for joining me today. This has just been such a blast to talk about. Uh, just, yeah, thank you, darling. <laughs> I, I could talk Pirates of the Caribbean all day, every day. So, like, in three years, when it's the 20th anniversary of Dead Man's Chest, uh, I will be it's this on. times 20. Because <laughs> that I my crazy take is that Dead Man's Chest is my favorite of the five. I think the second one I like even more than the first one. Where it's like they're literally number two, number three favorite movies all time for me, right next to each other on my list. So like I, the passion I have for this, multiply it by a million for Dead Man's Chest. So in twenty twenty six, if this is still going, I want to come back and talk Dead Man's Chest all day. So, then we will see you all next time. And when you come to the end, <laughs> stop. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Doing Disney. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Doing Disney Podcast and Twitter at Doing Disney Pod. 